Welcome to Talking Tourism, the podcast series created specifically for tourism operators. Talking Tourism, the expert series, is the ultimate resource for business owners who want to lift their skills to the next level. If you want to learn how to be a better tourism operator, listen on. Welcome to Talking Tourism, the podcast series, especially for tourism operators and industry professionals. I'm Rachel Williams, and I'm your host for today's episode. Talking Tourism is an initiative of Tourism Industry Council Tasmania, the peak industry body for the tourism industry in the beautiful state of Tasmania. In today's conversation, I'm going to be chatting with Katie Cooper, the Head of Product at New 21. Now, Katie's got over 20 years experience in financial services, retail, customer experience and strategic management, human resources, tourism and hospitality and technology industries. And she's really passionate about helping Tasmanians think exponentially about their futures, beginning with taking radical ownership of our own impact. Hello to you, Katie. Hello. How are you? I'm well. I'm exhausted after reading out that huge (laughs) repertoire of your experience over the last 20 years. Thank you. Yeah. um, I've had a very diverse career and been really fortunate with a lot of um, opportunities that I've had. So quite passionate, but yeah, it's been really enjoyable. Excellent. So you're a Hobart girl. I am. um, Working with companies right across Australia, which we want to hear all about. Tell me a little bit about New 21. It sounds like it's an interesting organisation. It is. So our focus is on transforming the workplace for the future. So it's about culture, it's about ways of working, it's about innovation, um, and it's about futures. So it's really thinking about strategy differently and then equipping those organisations to bring that future to life. And so we're going to be talking about today whole systems innovation, especially, of course, for tourism leaders. What does whole systems innovation actually mean? Yeah, so we had a workshop this morning which was fabulous. So whole systems innovation is about looking at all of the elements within your service delivery. So not only a hotel and the room and the front desk, but what are all the inputs to that system? What are the suppliers that you have? You know, what are the environments that impact it, political, uh, environmental, weather, etc. And then how you think about that as a whole system, living system. The workshop that we did today was really around understanding what are the elements of that system, you know, like people make up a small component of it, but communication is a really important part of it, for example, and how you influence an experiment to improve and change that system. So we gave them some great tools to do that. So systems have no doubt changed a lot over the last 18 months through no one's fault of their own. Absolutely. How's that been um, challenging for people and and how do you you know if you advise people to sort of get through that process? Yeah we had a really fantastic example this morning of Martin from one of the um, distilleries who was talking about the way that it impacts their future planning has been changed forever. There's no certainty in understanding volume or demand or the amount of employees that they might have or when they might be available and that that's going to change the way he strategically runs his business for the future. So that's one example. The other one is that all of the elements of those systems have had to shrink 
and scale up really quickly. So speed has become really important. So we've got uncertainty, we've got changes in speed. What does that mean as a leader? What are the skills I need in order to manage those changes in that system? So when we talk about whole systems innovation, then people would know that like to be able to design new experiences or innovations for their business off their own bat, but they've actually just had to do it. They've been forced into it, haven't they? That's right. It's it's almost forced design and improvement. And the ability to do that in a, a rapid way with an experimental mindset rather than thinking I've got to change this and it's a failure if it's wrong, but leaping into experiments, little nudges in the system to see if that worked. If it didn't work, that's okay. What was the feedback we got? How can we make a change again? So I think um, that that sort of fundamentally changed the way people design systems. The other part of it that was important about this morning was bringing people across the system together because doing it on your own can be really tough. So finding connections across other parts of the industry, who's running experiences, who's a supplier, a key supplier in the system, how do you have those relationships? How do you make sure those relationships are kept in a good place even when there's volatility in things that are happening is important too. So in the context of the tourism industry, obviously one of the hardest hit in Tasmania with those international closures, how does that whole system innovation look from your perspective for the tourism industry? I think the future for that, whilst we have this increased volatility, has to be that we're working together to create the experience. You can't say this is the sliver of the market and I'm going to hold on to that and work on silos with blinkers on. We actually have to work across that system and and maybe lean into some odd partnerships that weren't there before. How could we think differently about a limited supply of employees? How could we start to use them with multiple employers? You know, what's the skill that would enable us to do that and who could train in that skill? So just starting to think across the system instead of in your own little world. Mm. And no doubt you've, as you've said, you've had lots of experience from, a you know, bigger national businesses. Do you bring back some of those learnings to Tasmania or are we totally different with what we're doing here? There's a couple of things that are really unique around Tasmania. Relationship is so much stronger. So it's not what you know, it's absolutely who you know. And so that's actually a, a superpower. So so for us, it's when we bring back learnings around thinking about impacts of the future or changing workforces or changing demographics. Um, um, it's about, okay, well, how can we use that as a strength to gain advantage faster or we'll get speed? Um, that's one thing. And the other piece is that we're so connected to place which is so much part of the Tasmanian brand. Absolutely. An, an organisation that's national or international often doesn't have that really beautiful connection to place. So when um, when you're trying to build a culture, there's already a really strong foundation. So that's what's beautiful about bringing that stuff back to Tassie. So mm. let's break that down then for the, the average tourism operator at the moment. What do you feel that visitors are looking for when they do and can get to Tasmania again? Mm. And how can this whole systems approach that you've just mentioned actually fulfil that? Yeah. What they're looking for is to pack as much of that experience in whilst they're here. And I would say that they're looking to not go home wondering what they missed. 
So as a group, as a system, for us to be able to do really smooth handoffs to other experiences and and partnerships that show, you know, that little strange farm gate experience that maybe they didn't know existed um, is so important in, in what is the future of tourism in Tassie. I think it's also looking at what are our alternative markets and how can we bring them in. So one of the really interesting pieces, which I'll talk about tomorrow in the keynote is around permanent tourists. So we have a wave of new residents in Tasmania who are here because of the place, not because of work, because work came with them. So it's how do we embrace them as a permanent tourist as well. So how do we then map out a visitor experience across the system, looking for those new experiences, um, looking for those new opportunities and, and those new, not clients, new tourists yeah, or, you know, yeah. residents. Absolutely. So things like the peak bodies are fantastic. So I'm a vice president of TAS ICT, which is the technology peak body in Tasmania. We've got an incredible influx of skills into the state. We're looking for experiences for them to be supported and welcomed and made to feel at home so that they integrate culturally in into what is Tasmania. So it's partnering as, as a provider with someone like a peak body to say, okay, who have you got coming in? What's happening in that space? What are they looking for? Obviously, accommodation is a key one. Transitional accommodation is a key one. Services, you know, experiences, rewards, all of those things are an important part of that as an industry. And it would be the same with the agriculture industry and it would be the same with the aquaculture industry or any other industry in Tassie. So that that key link between the peak bodies is really important. And then collaboration, just being really open in networking events to create new relationships that might not make sense yet, but they will as you start to build out those new experiences. And that really comes back to that comment from before, which we both smiled at one another behind the microphones with, it's who you know, not necessarily what Mm. you know. And that's such a Tasmanian thing, isn't it? It But we've now got that opportunity for everyone to be in that basket. Mm, It's our competitive advantage. Yeah. So, and and I had an interesting conversation yesterday is as we grow from a population perspective, it's inherent in our being to, you know, walk down the street and go, hi, how are you going? Oh, yeah. I know you, I think I know you, I know that face from somewhere and you create the connection, the zero degrees of separation that is Tasmania. But it's also enabling new tourists and and new residents in Tassie to to learn that way in a really comforting and welcoming way, Um, making um, making introductions because it makes sense to make the introduction, not holding back on a relationship because it serves you at the moment to not share it, If, for example. Yeah. Mm. And so for those that couldn't come to the workshop as part of the um, the Tourism Industry Council's conference, were there some key takeaway points that people would walk away with now above and beyond that overarching theme of collaboration and and involving the key peak bodies? Yeah, what we did was we looked at, we brainstormed and workshopped what were the inputs into their system, what were the elements of their system, what was the feedback loops, how do we hear about changes in the system and what needs to change, and then what are the outputs? And then around that, what are all the relationships that are part of that? So they've taken away a really simple eight-step tool to say, here's my system, here's the bit that I want to actually impact, and here's how I go about doing that. 
So hopefully they'll be running experiments all over the place to improve that experience. So much innovation, we won't yeah. know what to do with exactly. it, will we? Mm. And one of the other things that you're imparting your wisdom on during the conference is alternative futures for tourism, a 10-year story. You know, if you were presenting this discussion point two years ago, I'm assuming it would be very different alternative futures that you would be elaborating on. Yeah. Give me an insight into that. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things around alternative futures is that at first they may appear to be ridiculous, right? (laughs) So we're looking 10 years out, we're looking at factors that influence how things might go. I'm not a crystal ball, I don't carry a crystal ball around with me, I'm not an astrologer, but it's about how do you kind of map a preferred future through a range of stories. So essentially it's storytelling. So I'll be sharing four different stories of a potential future for Tasmania, one being technology-led one being regenerative environmentally led, one being uh, migration led and the changes around that, and then one being um, that continued regulation and what impact that might have. Now, some of those are extreme stories. Uh, The technology one is about somebody who will never visit Tasmania but has been in place through technology and how do we play in that economy? And so it's like, oh, that might not happen to me. But the the goal is that it stimulates a little bit of thinking so that you might map a few little elements across all the four stories to think about what your strategy might be for the next five years, what skills you might need, where you might like to play in from a strategic perspective. And I'm assuming if COVID's taught us anything is that nothing's, nothing's out of the certain. ordinary, nothing's yeah. for certain, you know, <laughs> you can make what you want of, of life really when you have to, can't you? Absolutely. So one of the, I'm very big fan of Bob Johansson, who is a fellow of the Institute for the Future out of Silicon Valley. And one of his famous quotes is um, that, you know, whilst we can have clarity about the future, there is no certainty. So so what is the kind of direction that you want to head in? What is the purpose for that direction? You know, we're incredibly purpose-centred in Tassie. Um, and then how might you get there isn't yet mapped out. Yeah, and it's that's hilarious. Okay. I've literally mm. just watched Back to the Future for the first time ever with my children. So this is how ridiculously uneducated I am about, you know, some of these sci-fi movies and things. But that was really interesting. And you've mentioned now about technology. Mm. Where do you see Tasmania in 10 years as far as industry from the tourism perspective is concerned? Hyper-connected. So um, the the key with, you know, technologies like 5G on your phone and, and sensors and smart homes and smart rooms and things like that is that it creates a, a web of experience that can actually be quite seamless and hidden. You don't need to see it. It can just be there. So a lot of interactivity, a lot of imagine a journey where where somebody arrives and they've spent four or five days navigating Tasmania and similar to the tourism tracer work that was done a couple of years ago where their journey is captured the whole way but they get to take that home digitally and then share that with family so they they can smell. So not like the old video cam where you'd have it sort of forget to turn it on when you're actually filming. Yeah, that's right and someone swears behind you or something like that. But you actually get to take the experiences. Somebody can literally come and, um, you know, you think about, say, the walk, some of our great walks, so the overland track, you can actually take that full experience home and someone can actually experience the wombat walking across the boardwalk in front of you and you you can share that with your family when you get home because 
of the interconnectedness of of imagery, of sounds, of senses and them knowing where you are. So it's not it's almost like the positive side of a big brother. You know, I don't get I don't forget it. I get to actually put my technology away instead of staring at my phone, which I'm very guilty of a lot. <laughs> experience the experience, immerse myself in it, and know that I'll be able to come back to it at a later stage and share with others instead of feeling that I need to take a photo of it all. Okay. So how does that actually work? Who, who encapsulates that? Who, who gathers that information and data to take back? Yeah, the, a really great example of where it's already happening is in Derby Trails. So it's the ability to ride the trail, one of the tracks at Derby, virtually before you even arrive. Okay, that's a good tip. I might yeah. try that next time yeah. so I don't fall off. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to try it. I'll just try it virtually. <laughs> Thanks very much. My elbows are too thin. But um. You know, it's the ability to run that ride and understand and navigate each of the turns and what to expect um, and then actually do it. And so with sensors and cameras on the trail, capture the the actual video of you doing it and then take that journey back home and show people at different points when you might have fallen off the bike or where you absolutely yep. nailed it and get to share that with your family, which is really beautiful. I'm assuming there'd be a relatively large cost associated with that. So how does that help the smaller, you know, tourism operators? They just park on the back end of the big ones doing that and hope they get some, you know, yeah. peripheral business. And because it's a 10-year story, the really beautiful thing around technology is it becomes so much less ex- expensive as it goes on. So the more people that are using it, the more um, we democratise or, or uh, commoditise that technology. So sensors and, and cameras are already super cheap. You know, GoPros are six or seven hundred dollars and and you add that to the safety of the bike and it's already on there so all you need then is the little trigger that's built into the the log on the side of the um, track to to actually trigger a recording of that moment you know you want to grab that moment where somebody crests a hill and goes oh my god this is spectacular We've got the video. Absolutely. And if you did have a a crystal ball, which I'm sure it would work very well with you carrying that around, what would your alternative future for tourism be in terms of that regenerative tourism space? Because that is something that is becoming increasingly um, not popular, but people are aware of the need to, to get into that space. Yeah, there's a, there's a concept um, which I talked to in the in the keynote around donut economics. So it's the idea of using resources fairly and equitably without overusing them. And you can do that at a at a system level. You can do that at a city level. Melbourne have mapped their donut economics footprint, which is really interesting as a city. But you can now do it at an individual level. So when it comes to my car footprint, for example, in transport, what type of transport do I use and how frequently do I use it? And therefore, am I outside? What is my boundaries of of positive regenerative resource or am I underutilising or am I right in that sweet spot, which is the donut? And so for me, regenerative tourism is about people who intentionally want to influence that donut. So they might arrive in a way that is carbon neutral, that has the ability to have shared rides. So the impact or the footprint of that transport is lower than say airlines. So it could be solar submarines or something random to get out there. But then while they're here, they're doing something that leaves the place better than when they left it. So it could be sharing knowledge. They might be an expert in 
tree systems, for example, or they might be an expert in um, growing strawberries, who knows, but they're coming and sharing their knowledge and improving the place before they leave. Or it could be something as simple as, you know, they've come to they have to plant a tree. Every visitor to Tasmania should plant a tree before they leave. And that makes the place better than when they first arrived. And it influences their individual donut. So that's kind of the story that I build around that regenerative tourism. Yeah, no, that Mm. sounds very interesting. And as far as the future of the tourism industry is concerned, what do you think businesses and operators should be considering that they probably might not actually naturally consider? Mm. Um, There's a couple. The first one is around migration. There was a a recent article that was published out of some research uh, that Tasmania has the potential to be a lifeboat for the world. So you think about those disaster movies where they send everyone to Greenland because it's the perfect place to keep people safe and secure as the world falls apart. Tasmania's been flagged as one of those places and um, as well as South, South Island of New Zealand. So in that means that migrants will be and refugees will be coming to Tasmania. And how we think about those as permanent tourists is actually something that's really important. So if international tourists aren't available, if national tourists can't be relied upon to regularly stream through the door, what about these permanent tourists and how do we how do we rebuild a tourism economy that's about them? And it's about localised tourism. And so it's just shifting our thinking a little bit around that. And mm. to do that as well without incentives or government packages or things like that, how, how do you get that to happen organically? It's about identifying who the person is, what's the segment that you're attracting. And the beauty of that is that the current wave of migration is skilled workforce who already have employment. So many of them are, you know, wanting to bang down our doors from Sydney and Melbourne. They're working remotely. They might have a family. They actually have money. They're not relying on the social service structures of Tassie. So how do you attract them to your business in a way that gets meaningful income for both your employees and experiences for them in exchange? And so all of these topics that we've spoken about today with your role uh, at New 21, are both of those elements what you can help businesses with? Yes, yeah. So recently did a uh, forecast of four alternative futures for a large aquaculture company where we told stories about potentially what might occur or could occur for them as an organisation over the next 20 years, right down to we did a workshop on Friday reimagining a disability service provider's lodge. So they have an accommodation facility for people living with a disability and they wanted to recreate or reimagine what that might look like in five years time. So all of those skills then translate to a plan or a project that they're able to bring to life. So it's fully scalable. It's good fun. And five years, is that the optimum thinking ahead plan? People underestimate what they can achieve in five years and they um, generally overestimate what they can achieve in 12 months. So the idea is we get clarity of the vision what do we want to achieve? And then we make sure that we align our work practices, our um, prioritisation of tasks and resources and people and money to get to that five-year horizon. And they'll be surprised at how much they can achieve during that time when bringing that future closer to them. Mm. And it's obviously relevant for 
every size and scale of business across all industries. It is, yeah. I have small clients as well as large clients, as well as councils, government departments that I work with. So they're all relevant. And I'm assuming the cost involved of developing a five-year alternative strategy and, and plan for the future, the cost involved in that is much better spent at the start than having to deal with it when you're not quite ready and you have to catch up. That's right, absolutely. So, or at failure point where the business itself is no longer functioning because of outside forces. So the more that you think about doing that, both from a cost from a time perspective and a financial cost upfront, it enables you to just be in a position of power and, and a position of understanding that you can kind of go, okay, great, well, we've got we've got another wave of a pandemic coming through. What if we steer this way? We can activate this part of our strategy. Um, okay, that's easing off. Let's activate this part of our strategy now. Yeah, and I suppose even when you're really busy and things are going well, it's naive to think it's going to stay that way, isn't it? Yeah, it's, change is the only constant. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I've got seven very important questions to ask you now that you've imparted all of that knowledge on us. We want to hear a little bit about you, your favourite spot in Tasmania and why. Is Mayfield Beach overlooking uh, the Freshenay Peninsula on the east coast just before Rocky Hills. We go camping there every Australia Day. It's off grid. It's my beautiful, precious family time where we just get to play in the water and hang out in the sunshine. Sounds perfect. Favourite travel destination anywhere in the world? Uh, I have to say, I, I will say Tasmania. I, I love Tasmania. So for me, possibly. I really love Bishano. I love that everything's in the one spot and you can take your family. I've obviously got a family, but you can also access the water. Um, you can access wildlife. You can access forests um, and, and do some pretty amazing things. So we, we love Bishano as well. Well, that's handy. You're not missing out on any overseas <laughs> travel at the moment, are you? I think I'd love to go to Japan at some stage, but I haven't yet. Yes, so. especially after the Olympics. Wasn't it amazing? Someone coming to Tasmania for the very first time in their life asks you, what's the one thing they absolutely must experience while they're here? What do you tell them? Farmgate market, yeah, whether it's north or south. Uh, that connection to local producers, that incredible food. I love food. I love food too. We're so blessed, aren't we? We've got we some amazing producers. Uh, walking the Overland Track for five days with three other people, anyone in the world, famous, not famous, living or dead, who and why? I'd love to have my dad there. So he passed away, unfortunately, way too young. I'd love to have him experience what it's like to be in Tasmania now. Uh, that would be pretty special. I'd love to have um, Bob Johansson, the futurist. Um, he he definitely would stimulate my thinking and my, I suppose, my provoke different thoughts as I'm, I'm doing that overland track. And then the third one would probably be my daughter. She's such a, a rat bag and a spirit, free spirit. I think to open her eyes to that would be incredible. She might whinge about the walk though. <laughs> oh, it's, it's not that hard. It's, it's beautiful. You're road tripping around Tasmania. What are you listening to in the car? A bit of Killers. Awesome. Love the Killers. Uh, when you arrive at your destination, what's your tipple of choice? Gin and tonic for Excellent. sure. It has you to be should, in Tasmania. We're going to get on really well, yeah. I think. Um, and the last big one, the big debate, curry Tasmanian scallops, a culinary delight or a culinary crime? I have to say a crime. I can't do it. Um, but I, I grew up on curried sausages, so I can't get past the curried thing. I could do a scallop pie. No worries. Curried scallop pie, can't get past it. 
Fair enough. Oh, look, thank you so much for your time today. We've really appreciated it. Thank you so much, Katie Cooper. We look forward to seeing what the future holds in five years. We should get you back and and see how close you were. Yeah, I'll be up for that for sure. We can start a betting book. Thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, look, thank you very much for listening to today's episode of Talking Tourism. Remember to subscribe to hear more episodes as we do release them every two weeks or so. And please do tell a friend or tourism colleague to check out our podcasts. We've got 80 available um, over the back catalogue and you can listen wherever you access your podcasts or stream them on the TICT website. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Rachel Williams. Catch you next time. You've been listening to Talking Tourism, brought to you by Tourism Industry Council Tasmania. For show notes, other materials and episodes, head to tict.com.au. Be sure to come back every fortnight for a new instalment of Talking Tourism.